You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. This episode of the Hunter's Advantage podcast is brought to you by HuntStand. HuntStand is a digital mapping software company that allows you to mark points on public or private land, e-scout, share maps with friends, and it will really allow you to narrow down areas that you want to target for different game. You can do all these things without ever stepping foot on the property or leaving the comfort of your home. I'm going to be using the app this year while turkey hunting, whitetail hunting on public land, and hunting black bear in Saskatchewan, Canada. If you want to pick up a subscription to HuntStand, go to HuntStand.com and use code ADVANTAGE at checkout. That'll give you 10% off your next subscription. Once again, that is use code ADVANTAGE at checkout. This app will truly change the way that you hunt. This, uh, on this week of the podcast, I am uh, joined by Matt Ross. He's the assistant director of conservation. Um, Matt, why don't you give the listener just a little context into you know what you do at the QDMA and how you got started there? Sure. Uh, I'll I'll start with how I got started. I actually um, became a member um, at a graduate school. Um, I, I had heard about QDMA through um, a friend, actually. When I was in graduate school, uh, I was studying deer. I went to school for wildlife, and uh, the state agency that I went to school in funded my project. So I had to, you know, report my findings, and and I had some an advisory committee, and uh, the state's deer biologist was actually on my advisory committee, and uh, he left that job and started working for QDMA. That's how I heard had heard about it, and uh, that was in the early '90s, and. Uh, I had thought, uh, you know, what is this group? I'd never heard of this deer organization before. So I joined and became a member and I was a member for a few years. And, uh, after uh, a few years of just getting the magazine and, and, uh, wanting to get more involved, uh, a close friend and I started the very first QDMA branch. Those are the, like, you know, local chapters, we call them branches in new England. There hadn't been any in any new England state. I was living in New Hampshire at the time. And uh, that branch is still going today, actually, uh, obviously different volunteers. And I don't live in New Hampshire anymore, but uh, we started a branch and I was the vice president for a couple of years and the uh, uh, president for a year and uh, did that for a while. And eventually there was a job opening uh, with QDMA in 2006. I was hired uh, to be a regional director. So um, I at the time was working in the forestry and wildlife consulting field. I'd gotten out of graduate school by then, um, working for a, a, a consulting company, going to landowners, uh, providing advice. Uh, I was doing both forestry and wildlife consulting. So Mark and Timber, making forestry prescriptions, writing management plans, those kinds of things. And uh, the job was very different than what I was doing, but I had believed in QDMA's mission and was such a staunch supporter and, and a member for enough years there that I was like, you know what, I really want to talk to people about deer hunting. I want to, I want to get in the deer hunting industry. And so I became a regional director and worked with all 
well, at the time there wasn't that many uh, members or branches in New England, but started up a bunch of branches uh, throughout the the Northeast and eventually covered New York. And I've changed positions with with the the company since 2006 a few times. Um, eventually coming into the conservation department. Um, my title now, as you said, is the assistant director of the department, and uh, I oversee a couple things. Um, primarily. We have some landowner-specific, hunter-specific uh, assistance programs, like private land assistance programs. They're mostly educational. Uh, we have some classes people take. You can take them online. You can take them in person. Uh, we do custom trainings for companies and state agencies. So I'm in charge of running those classes, those educational opportunities across the country. Um, I can talk more about those if you're interested. Uh, we also have a program where if somebody owns land and wants advice, um, we have a network of professionals that have been trained by QDMA that can come and look at your property. Um, that's a pretty pretty uh, common request. We get emails or calls during the year and say, hey, you know, I just bought this property or the land's been in my uh, family for some time and we just started getting into deer management or I lease it or what have you and say they want to make the property better. How can I get somebody to come look at it? So there's a program that I oversee that does that. And uh, then we also have a, in the same bucket, a, um, a landowner assistance program in certain states, not every state. Um, we have education on QDM cooperatives nationally on our website, and we have publications that people can download or buy. But we also employ uh, staff in several states that it's their primary job responsibility to go visit a landowner if they're interested in starting a co-op and getting their neighbors on board and, and helping them maintain uh, a, a QDM cooperative. And those those in, exist in several places. Um, we have uh, had have had um, employees in other states that uh, work with forestry. So if you want properties assessed for forest management. Um, so anyway, I, I oversee people in Alabama, Michigan, Missouri, New York, and, and others that that's they don't go outside those states, but they that's their job. Um, those are those are like my main job responsibility. But as the assistant of the department, I get my hands on a lot of stuff. Like right now, um, annually we put out something called the Whitetail Report. It's we've been doing it for a decade. Um, that's really something I'm working on right now. Like you were saying, what's your day to day like in January? We're about to publish that report. So we're going through the editorial process. I'm one of the main authors, Kip Adams, who's the director of conservation for QDMA. We write the bulk of that, but staff are involved in many facets. I mean, it's not just the two of us, but uh, that should be published pretty soon. Um, I also am involved with other things that we do nationally, like we have a Whitetail Weekend coming up, um, which is basically our convention uh, in March at our headquarters. So I'm, I'm in charge of doing all the education for that. So make sure that people come to that are enjoying the educational experience. So, you know, lot, lots and lots of different things throughout the year. Yeah, of course. I mean, I've had Lindsay and Kip both on the podcast, and it seems like all of you guys uh, wear a lot of hats at the QDMA. And do a lot of good work. So, I mean, everyone out here really appreciates it, especially that right whitetail report. I love digging into that. But um, one one cool thing I'd like to ask you about is 
you know, without seeing a property or writing a management plan specific for that property, you know, what are some easy, simple ways that somebody that has a property, or like you said, has been in their family a long time, what's some simple ways that they can improve that property um, for whitetail? Maybe if it's raw, uncut, not really managed for that. It's pretty site specific, obviously, because you can take a, a parcel in the a heavily wooded uh, part of the country, you know, where there's not much open space uh, versus something that might be a mix of agriculture and old fields and forests versus something that might be completely uh, like a grassland with no trees on it. And the prescription or what you would do is going to be different. But the the first thing I always tell everybody is, um, and everybody likes to look at maps, you know, online or or whatever. Um, is to look at the the composition of your property. Um, what does it look like? And then compare it to the landscape around it. So it's kind of like a, a an assessment or um, from a 30,000 foot view is just look at what it what the property's composition is of those major uh, vegetation components. So is it all forested? Is it is it a mix? Is it all open? And then how does that compare to you know, a, a mile, mile and a half around the property. Ha, you know, what what can you do to make the property different? Generally, deer like very diverse uh, environments. They also like low lying cover. Um, so, if because low lying cover is where they're going to feel the most secure, and it's also where they're going to get food uh, most accessible. I mean, deer deer aren't uh, more than they can't reach more than about six feet in height. So, you know, if you have a closed canopy forest there's probably not going to be a lot of, of ground cover. But the first step is to look at it, how the property compares to the, to the neighbors um, and then start making some really broad brush decisions um, before you even step foot on it. I mean, in the circumstances of somebody owning it for generations, they've been all over and it's you can't help but know what every little corner, nook, uh, you know, a little corner of the property has. But if you if you get up from a 30,000 foot view, and you and you use a broad brush application and say, okay, just because it's forest over in this one corner, um, does it need to be? Would it be better if it was open? Would it be better for you know hunting pressure if I could access it better this way? You know, so start making some of those decisions. That that's one thing I tell everybody is just because it's in its current state doesn't mean it needs to uh, stay that way. And then the second thing is uh, don't hesitate to change things. Um, it's really intimidating. You know, a lot of folks love food plots because it's something that if you mess up, you can fix it within six months or a year, you know, like <laughs> you just till it in and you redo something. It's also really accessible, you know, even if you don't have equipment. I know a lot of discussions get in the food plot world of, well, I don't have any equipment, but even without equipment, you can you can do something. Um, but the bigger, bigger stuff, like if it is forested and making it not forest, that's an intimidating task, you know. Uh, there's assistance out there. Don't uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, there's ways you can actually even make money um, off your property um, through. There's federal assistance. There's consultants like I used to do. But don't don't be afraid to to do some disturbance and change the property because deer really respond well to that. Um, the third thing I would say, probably last thing you know, of anybody can do besides looking at how the property's composition is compares to your neighbors. Uh, don't be afraid of change is uh, get a good sense of 
this is like the least sexy of QDM. You know, everybody likes the um, the gateway drugs of trail cameras, food plots, big antlers, those kinds of things. Is uh, don't be afraid to collect a little data. Um, I think that is one thing I've really learned in the last twenty years that can help uh, a property manager. And it and it it doesn't have to be super geeky or nerdy. You can collect some real basic information. Like if you're going to hunt uh, anyway, record what you're seeing. A lot of people do that, but then use that data. You know, like however many hours you sat, how many deer you saw, how many were bucks, how many were fawns, how many were does, how many deer you couldn't identify. Collect it throughout a season, and you could do some real basic calculations off that. I mean, it's not difficult math of how many, uh, uh, you know, how many hours you sat total in a season. Uh, and how many deer you saw total, you can get a deer per hour estimate uh, and then compare that year over year. If you want to know your, if your deer density is going up or staying the same or going down, a deer per hour estimate would give you a, a good trend over time. So five years of that in a row, you could be like, wow, you know, five years ago, I saw a one and a half deer, deer per hour and this and it's been going down every year. And now I'm seeing, you know, 0.8 deer per hour. You got a good sense that your deer density is probably dropping. And then you can make decisions of maybe we shouldn't shoot as many does as we have been uh, or, you know, vice versa. That's real simple stuff that anybody can do. And I would I would recommend uh, same thing with, uh, you know, numbers of fawns per doe. That gives you a good estimate of productivity of the deer herd. Like how productive is it? Are they producing a lot of offspring and whether or not you shoot more does or not? Um, how many bucks you're seeing per hour or or. If you want to segment, you know, older bucks versus younger bucks and just say, how many older bucks per hour am I saying? Real, real simple math that, you know, kids in elementary school are learning that you, anybody can do. And you can look at that over time and gives you a good snapshot. Uh, and it doesn't cost anything. You're already hunting. Just take a pen and piece of paper with your or, you know, have your phone app open. Uh, or note page on your on your smartphone and keep track of it over a year it's easy those are those are the things that i think anybody can do whether you yeah. own land or lease it or or not or you hunt public land yeah those are uh, those are some great tips I, I think the one that i'm most interested in and is uh you know improving maybe large patches of timber because i know it's sometimes it's kind of intimidating hunting timber because um a lot of the, a lot of times there's not a lot of method to the madness. You know, you're kind of sitting in a certain spot, maybe trying to find some trails or some natural creek bottoms that they go down. But how, how specifically do you look at, um, improving maybe a property with a lot of timber? Is it taking out some of the timber and opening up the canopy or to get some light onto the ground or planting a food plot in the timber? I see a lot of people doing that nowadays, but what's yeah. a more prescribed approach for a property with a lot of timber? Cause that's what, that's what we have, um, yeah. by my home. Uh, uh, that's actually one of my favorite things too, being a, a forester. I mean, I, and also being a big, big deer hunter. I mean, I, I love the, the process of starting at a, you know, quote unquote blank slate of a forested property and sculpting it by making decisions and, and doing some of those prescriptions. Um, the main property that I hunt is a, as a cooperative. I don't own any land on it. My best friend is, a um, owns a farm there. I also, I do have a uh, land that we haven't done a ton of forest, uh, land op operations on it yet, but we, we will as my brother-in-law's place. But the one that has the most history that I can give you an example that we've done and what I 
what I talk about and teach and what we used to do when I consulted was if you have a property that's primarily all forested is again, starting with a map, I would look at the terrain, the, you know, the relief or topographic features of the property and start making decisions, particularly where I am. I'm, I'm in New York. It's cold up here. Um, you don't have to have a super cold environment to do this, but um, south facing aspects of slopes will generally be preferred during the deer season and in the winter by deer because that's getting a direct sun. And then you also have the impact of uh, the direct sun influencing what grows there because uh, everything grows by sunlight and every tree and plant out there can be categorized as either sun loving or not. And if you want to influence a lot of really good young growth for deer, you want a lot of sunlight on it. So I, I will start with a parcel um, that's primarily forested. And I look at the relief, the topographic features and start um, making note of any south facing slopes. Um, at the same time, I pay attention to hunting access, um, you know, how I'm entering the property and wind direction. So for the best case scenario, uh, you know, what, what can I do to influence uh, deer movement, you know, then I start making some of those decisions of really large scale clearing um, on south facing slopes, or as I mentioned before, uh, you know, you do this uh, 30,000 foot view assessment, the next step to that would be to ground truth anything. And, and if you've never been on a part property, you would want to, once you do your, your 30,000 foot view assessment is, is get some boots on the ground and go out there and see what's actually growing there. Um, so the second thing that I would decide on where I'm going to make big clearings would be, where does the forest need it? Because again, being a forester, although I am a deer hunter, being a forester, I'm also going to treat the woods with the best care and stewardship. And if, uh, stand that is South facing slope on, uh, on a map says to me, Hey, I might want to clear it. And I go there and it's got a lot of young, but really potentially good timber growing on it. I probably won't clear it because that would be uh, silly because financially in a, you know, 20, 30 years, that might be a, a, a source of revenue. So I, I wouldn't clear that. So you have to ground truth everything, but from a hunting perspective, if you take out the timber value side of it, I start targeting places that I I, I want to potentially clear and make what we call in the forest world, even age management or even age clearing. So that would be a clear, most people know clear cuts. Okay. Um, you could, you can clear a spot, you can cut 60% of the trees off, 70% of the trees off and leave, you know, a handful of trees. That's, there's a couple other term, terms that that would be known as uh, shelter water seed tree cuts, but basically I want to promote a lot of sunlight going into those places. Um, there may be spots that you don't even cut because, you know, they're unique and, and really desirable to deer right now in the condition that they're in, or they need to grow. Um, and there might be other places that need a, a little tender love and care, a little TLC. So you would go in and most people call it thinning, you know, go in and thin the trees or select cut um, it, whatever terminology it is, you may not go as heavy. You're going to remove some poor quality trees. You're going to leave your best quality trees, but you're going to let a little bit of sunlight filter in there. Uh, and that will promote more of your, your shade tolerance species. But 
uh, in a really comprehensive plan, you're doing both. You're, you're or doing all three. You, there might be places that you're letting go for the future. You're not doing right now. Um, or you're just leaving because it's a unique spot that you're already betting or it's hard to access or, you know, whatever the reason. There might be places that you're clearing or cutting very heavily. And there might be places that you're cutting with a little bit lighter hand. Um, and I do all that. Try to. That's what a good management plan is. Do all that with uh, the thought process of how do I get the wood out? What are the road systems going to look like? How is that going to impact hunting in the future? How's that going to impact access in the future? You know, the that's it takes a lot of thought to do all that, and that's why a lot of folks uh, are we and we at QDMA really strongly recommend working with a professional because, as a landowner, most people don't have that expertise; um, they don't have that knowledge base. In fact, in a bunch of states, it's required to be licensed to even practice forestry. So you also mm. want to stay legal, but um, you know, for the most part, that expertise it, it comes with value because. If you want to influence uh, deer-loving species, uh, you want to make sure you you cut in the right aspect and at the right time of year, and that you don't rot up the ground too bad. So th- those are all choices that a forester and a biologist can help you make. Um, but we do these training programs that we try to teach as much of that as possible without going through a full college degree, and those are options too. Yeah, that's awesome. So for a lot of people that don't have the luxury um, of hunting a public piece or even having any sort of family piece to manage, what about what can someone do or how can someone not lock down on maybe some native forage um, in these public land places? Like I hunt a lot of timber um, and when the acorns drop, it's really hard to um, locate these deer and pinpoint and lock them down because they can really be anywhere. So how do you how do you hunt clear? Is it hunting new clear cuts or um, hunting a certain part of native forage, or what's your strategy or advice to someone that can only hunt public land? Yeah, it, it, it can be difficult. And when I was living in New Hampshire, I'm blessed now that I have access to private land. Uh, when I lived in New Hampshire for about ten years, which is a very forested state, it's the second most forested state in the country. So there's not much open there. Um, it's also pretty mountainous. It's actually known as the granite state. So the the productivity of the soil is not great, but there's lots of big trees and the forest industry is pretty heavy. And there's a lot of public land there in, in New Hampshire too. Um, a lot of accessible land. So that's how I hunted for over a decade there. Um, pinpointing deer uh, at different times of the year can be much more difficult than it can in other places. Um, one of the things I'd still go to a map before I did anything and try to determine if it's on a piece of public um, when was any forest operations done in the last, say, 10 to 15 years? Um, if you get past seven, eight years, uh, you really start seeing trees grow to the point where they're shading out the ground. But if something was cut, you know, even eight, nine, 10 years ago, there might be fringes of young cover still left. You might not see it on, a, on an aerial today. So you can wind back the clock, look at some old aerials, maybe even go in and talk to the manager of that public land and just find out about the history of management there. Um, that would give me some key features or places to go and then ground truth and walk before I spend a lot of time just walking everywhere. Um, and I did that, uh, trying to find places where even if you can't see it, like, you know, again, people call them select cuts or thinnings. Um, something may have been thinned. Uh, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, and it doesn't, you can't see it on an aerial because it's still trees everywhere. 
um, those might be good some some good places. So if you want to pinpoint those those low lying uh, spots. I also honestly would always try to to get in your wetlands. Um, wetlands are places that when on public land, deer uh, will go to if the pressure is high enough. Um, if there's some hummocks of high ground out there, um, whether it's a cattail swamp or a red maple swamp or something, you know, a lot of people aren't going to trudge through some of that over the edges might actually have a little bit more sunlight because it's open there. Um, wetlands were always a good spot for, to, to key in on for myself. So those are, those are two things I used to do. Um, I wouldn't say I was enormously successful in either case with killing deer, but I would see deer sign. I would see deer. I'd get even into moose in New Hampshire. I mean, I'd get, I'd, I'd be in the, uh, in the mix in both of those cases. Um, New Hampshire is just a unique place because the deer density is so low um, mm -hmm. <laughs> that, I mean, it's just a, it's a North, very Northern state deer densities of seven to 10 deer per square mile is pretty common. So it's not, there's just not a lot of deer there. Um, but the same principles would work if you had to high deer density or not. Yeah. So where we hunt, um, a lot of the hunting we do is in Southeast Oklahoma. It's a lot of pine and, um, I don't know, I guess a mix of warm season grasses. Um, so in one of the management tactics they use quite a bit is, um, prescribed burns. They'll burn a ton of the property, um, mm. throughout the year. And so, and in some areas there's clear cuts. Have you had any luck or do you know of anyone that's had any luck, you know, hunting these new areas of prescribed burn? Is that a good strategy for whitetail? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes. Prescribed burns will, depending on the time of year, do a couple things. If they're done during the, what we call the dormant season, basically when trees are all asleep, um, you know, and a lot of them, a lot of prescribed burns are across the country are done that time of year, you know, February, uh, March, uh, that time of year, even January in, in the South, um, you're going to stimulate more woody growth after a burn, um, which deer will use. They browse uh, the ends of the branches at certain times of the year. Um, if it's burned in the late growing season, it has to be pretty dry to do a burn, right? So you're not going to burn in the spring or in the midst of the summer because there's humidity so high. But at the late growing season, as things are just about to to senesce or go to sleep for the for the fall, you can get some burns in then too. And if a prescribed fire is done at that time of year, uh, you will stimulate woody cover, but you also stimulate a lot of forbs, um, annual and biennial forbs, which are these broadleaf plants that don't have woody material in them that deer really like to eat. Um, so based on the time of year when a prescribed burn is done, the the result and the deer response to it the following year is going to be pretty different. So I would find out when they're done. Um, immediately after a burn, I mean, deer use those unless, unless it's wide open charred ground, even then they will use them. Uh, you know, right after a burn, I wouldn't hesitate to hunt near around those places because deer like disturbance. Um, they really do. A burn might go through and like within a week or two, um, expose some woody shrubs that were hard to get to, you know, maybe, maybe it was something that deer couldn't get to, and then they start browsing on it. So I would pay attention to burns just because anything that's disturbed, um, and the, a lot of folks know in forest industry world, in the forest industry landscape, you know, an active logging job is a place that attracts deer. Deer will find tops that are down. They walk around the fresh dirt. You know, it, it, they they pay attention to disturbance. So anything like a burn would be disturbance. I would I would even in an immediate uh, state right after it's done, pay attention to see if deer are using it. 
Yeah, no. But it's, think, it's generally a good technique. Uh, yeah. Prescribed fire is, is favorable for deer management. Yeah, I think I've had pretty decent luck hunting, um, you know, areas that were uh, newly burned um, and the edge of clear cuts. So I, I find that to be true in my personal opinion as well. Um, one of the things that uh, Lindsay had told me that you you were maybe a subject matter expert on was this idea of, of buck movement like science. And I, I know that uh, targeting and, and harvesting mature deer year after year is one of the hardest things to do as a, as a hunter and especially as a bow hunter. So what can you tell uh, me specifically about maybe some of the research you've done around buck movement and how they move, how they navigate through uh, these environments? Sure. Uh, I, uh, I guess he, he put me down as a subject matter expert because a few years ago I had done uh, not personally done the research, but I dug into the uh, archives of all the peer-reviewed literature that had been coming out from different colleges and universities to, to create a presentation for our convention. Um, and I looked at all the different things and just kind of came up with a top 10 list sort of of what we know about mature buck movements. It proved to be a very popular um, presentation at that convention, but uh, did a follow-up article or a couple of them and uh, in the magazine and on our website. And those, those even continue today to be very, very popular uh, in terms of people finding them on search engines, just because they want to know, like you said, how do I, how do I, how do I uh, make my efforts the best success in terms of hedging my best bets of what deer are doing? So, you know, some of the things that we learned about deer are uh, mature bucks, particularly, and the research that I looked at was over several years, um, but everything was from GPS research. So, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're not talking about the um, old radio collars where somebody had to like try locate a deer and hold an antenna up in there. These GPS collars that are on deer in the last 10 years are amazing. You know, within a couple meters can say where a buck or any deer that's wearing that collar is uh, plus or minus a couple of meters to the to the minute or to the hour. And it's just downloading all this data from a satellite. You could just populate a map and say, where was that deer the month of November? you know, during daylight hours and all of a sudden the map shows it. So it's super accurate information, stuff we didn't really know about. Um, and it was all, all the studies had to do that I kind of segmented out or filtered were for that had bucks that were two or older. So some of them had bucks that were six, seven years old um, in their in their sample size. Um, but, for, you know, we're talking about deer that are uh, not yearlings, two and older and uh what we found was there's some some truths. There's some things that we do know. Um, there's still stuff that's up in question. Um, one of the things that we know are deer are um, individuals. I'll kind of I'll state that first. Um, some deer are um, homebodies. You know they they have very small home ranges. Uh, some deer have very large home ranges. Uh, it doesn't matter. There's no correlation to age. It's not like as a deer gets older. Um, their home range expands. It's just based on their, you know, quote unquote personality of that deer. Um, some will just not, they don't travel a lot. So they don't have very large home ranges and some have very big ones. And likewise, and again, there's no correlation to the size of their home range. Some are on their feet a lot and they move a lot. So they might, might have a, a small home range, but they're moving a lot within that space. Some might have a small home range and move very little. 
like, you know, in a day to day basis, they don't move very far. So there's those personalities too. And same thing, you might have a really large home range that moves a lot and you might have a really large home range that doesn't. Um, how about daytime uh, active, whether or not it's super active, same thing, you know. So the point is, there are individuals. Um, I'll bring that up again, I guess, as we get a little further, but uh, each deer has, quote unquote, a personality. And it's just like uh, some folks are world travelers and other people probably never left their county. You know, they're comfortable <laughs> doing that. You know, think of deer in, in that sense. Um, when I say home range, a home range is where a deer is going to be found 95% of the time. So if I populated a map and you put all those uh, locations on it, and I drew a circle around 95% uh, of those dots. You might have a couple outliers here or there, but it's basically if I threw a dart at the map and, you know, nine times or more out of, out of 10, where's that deer going to be? That's their home range. Um, if I say core area, that's a term that scientists use. That's where a deer is 50% of the time. So you basically have a one in two chance of finding the deer. One real interesting thing we found with mature bucks is... Home ranges vary across the country. You know, these studies were done in all types of environments, deep south, brush country of Texas, eastern shore uh, of the mid-Atlantic, uh, big woods environments of Pennsylvania where there's nothing but, but trees and high mountains all over the place. Home range and core area, uh, they vary quite a bit across, across the country. I mean, I can get in those numbers if you want, but I wouldn't, you know, there's the popular literature always says a deer's home range is about a square mile. That's not that far off if you averaged all of those. But, man, the range is so wide. In some places, home ranges are much smaller than a square mile. In some places, they're like three to four times that on, on an annual basis. Um, you know, for the ones that are really, really big are typically like places like South Texas, where it's all brush country. And there's very a homogeneous habitat. You know, deer might have very, very large home ranges in places where they have to travel far to, to kind of find diversity. Um, just using that as an example. But um, but the kind of the key note there that I found looking at all this is the core area, uh, by and large, in all of these places, doesn't matter where you are, always made up about 10 to 15 percent of what the home home range was going to be. So, for example, if the national average, if we say that square mile, it's about 640 acres, is um, what an average home range is, and their quarter area is 10 to 15 percent of that, and that holds true across the country, you're looking at 60 to 70 acres. Mm -hmm. So, for somebody that has access to a 50-acre parcel um, and asks, can I really influence a whole deer herd? We can't really influence a whole deer herd, but you can really influence an individual deer if that's their core area. And yeah. if you if you get that deer into an older age class, you know, you keep passing them, uh, you you would have an option. And even better yet, I mentioned earlier about co-ops, work with one or two neighbors and it makes a huge difference. These co-ops are super, super good in terms of trying to have an impact on a landscape scale. So that's one thing we learned. Uh, by and large, we another truth we know is deer are most active at dawn and dusk. Doesn't matter the time of year. Um, they're known as crepuscular species, which means they're most active at dawn and dusk. Um, even in the rut, uh, they're most active at dawn and dusk. Yeah, you can kill a deer in the middle of the day 
and, you know, hunting pressure can bump a deer and you put them in front of you. Um, but even during the rot deer are going to be most active, uh, during those few hours, uh, around sunlight, sun, sunrise and sunset. Um, that, that holds true in almost every case of research that I saw, except for one in, uh, central Florida where the Florida Panther lives, uh, the, in that place, deer have adapted to be more active during the day, uh, because of the predation aspect of the Panther, I guess. <laughs> um, but you know, everywhere else in the country, deer are most active at dawn and dusk, and you can take take that to the bank for uh, for for a fact. Um, trying to think what other things we learned about deer. Um, you can be guaranteed that home range is going to expand and core area during the breeding season. So, you know, if a buck has a home range of four or five hundred acres uh, in on average during the year. Um, during the rut, it could be one to three times that size. They're going to travel a lot, lot larger. But the smallest time of the year when their home range and core area is going to be late spring, early summer. And that, that trend seems to hold true no matter where you are in the country and the individual deer is there's this rhythm throughout the year where deer's home range uh, expand, you know, going up into the rut and then start shrinking again. Um, so that, that the annual average doesn't really tell you a true picture of what a deer is doing until you start looking at the year in a whitetail and what they do. Um, those are, those are key things. And you think about like summertime when food is probably abundant and deer can bed right near it. doesn't matter what the food source is, but that's when everything's growing. Deer mm -hmm. can bed really close to it and just walk a short distance, eat a little bit and go back into cover, uh, when they need to, um, as that changes throughout the summer and foods become less valuable or they start changing their desire to eat different things because diets are changing and they need to really start gaining a lot of weight. Um, they start moving around a lot and then they start getting into the pre-rut and then rut and they're just running around everywhere and their, and their home range really expands. Um, so that's, that's something that we can say that you can take to the bank about, about what deer does. How about hunting pressure? I'm sure that's what everybody's, I can get into some more, uh, biometrics of what deer are doing, you know, biologically, but how does, how does uh, what we do impact deer? That, that's something always everybody wants to know. Um, hunting pressure does impact deer movements without a doubt. There's been enough research now to show that it does, um, deer will react fairly quickly to uh, us, our presence, uh, that might be slight changes in how they move. It might be really drastic changes based on uh, how many, how much and how intense the pressure is. Um, actually, you said uh, you're from Oklahoma. Um, there's some really cool research out of Oklahoma Noble Foundation did um, and some other research actually duplicated similar stuff, but they showed at a hunter per 75 acres, if I have this correct, um, so for a hunter, for every 75 acres of land impacted deer movement, but not that badly. But when they increased the number of hunt, I can tell you how they did this too. It was a really neat study. Um, but if they increased the, oh, I'm sorry. And that backwards, a hunter for every 200 to 250 acres. So very low hunting pressure, mm -hmm. uh, impacted deer movements, but, but not much. But when they got below a hunter for every hundred acres, I think it was one for every 75. So that's, you know, a fair number of hunters on the landscape. Every 75 acres, there's a hunter out there on the landscape. It really 
once it broke that threshold of around a hundred uh, acres for every hunter, it really changed what deer deer were doing. And they found that deer went more nighttime activity. They changed the path of how they moved um, instead of a more direct line of A to B. They had a very more, much more complex path of how they traveled. So instead of going in a straight line, um, it was a it was a much more um, curved as you know aspect. That, that the term they used in the research was tortuous, which is just a fancy term to say they basically used cover more. And instead of going in a direct line, they actually would go out of their way to get to where they needed to be. Um, and uh, hunter. Uh, sightability, what they saw went down, obviously, because the deer were doing that. And it took about three to four days before deer returned to activity. So one day of intense intensity. So you think of like an opening day when there wasn't a lot or the day before opening day, right? Because everybody's going out there checking their stands or hanging mm-hmm. stands or whatever. Deer start reacting to that. And it takes them three to four days to, to return to normal. Um, they do return to normal. Deer don't leave the county. They don't leave the, the property. Uh, they don't. They, they have a very high what we call site fidelity. That is where they live. They just change what they do. You're not going to scare deer off. Uh, I, I will talk about in a second. I know I'm just going on and on, but I'm. Oh, I'm no, sure. you're good. I'm, I'm soaking yeah. this up like a sponge. Yeah. <laughs> uh, deer do something where, called an excursion. If I don't remember to tell you about it, let, let me tell you in a minute remind me uh but they do these things that do send them out of the county which is kind of crazy that we learned about in the last couple of years that's a whole segment of deer movements that is really fascinating um but generally where deer lives once they've dispersed as a young young deer so uh most deer disperse most bucks disperse um you know three out of four or almost four out of five bucks will leave where they're born between when they're uh, about a year and a year and a half old, and they go somewhere different. It's it's just ensures good genetic mixing of the deer herd. Uh, even does about twenty five percent of does disperse from where they're born. M- most about seventy five percent of does stay where they're born, and they stay in these uh, maternal family groups. That's why you see big big groups of female deer together. Um, they're they're in these family groups. But even does disperse. Um, but once a deer is, is two years old or older, a buck, I should say, when a buck, once a buck is two years old or older, uh, they are where they're going to live. Um, and if they decide your property or the, the general area where your property that you have access to is where they want to live, you can pressure them all you want. They're not going anywhere. That's where they're going to live. They're just going to do something different so you don't see them. Um, we have a really great blog on the website that says something like the title is uh, – Uh, hunt on thursdays and it's tongue in cheek but it's true uh because that research on noble foundation land was um then again not the same exact study but similar types of hunter pressure studies were done in north carolina um and one in other states escaping me but they showed the same kind of impact where within a short period of time deer react to hunting pressure and it takes them three or four days to return to normal and if you look at a day, you know, a normal schedule, most people hunt on weekends, mm-hmm. and, you know, and deer have been pressured all weekend. They're probably starting to return back to normal around Thursday. Yeah. Uh, and then we, and then we booger them up again on Friday afternoon and Saturday because we start hunting. <laughs> uh, so yeah, deer, you know, they, they know when they're getting pressured and, uh, you have to, you have to play that, uh, uh, you know, play, 
keep that in mind when you're starting to, to sculpt a property or hunt a property and figure out how to how to best them. One of the best ways you can do that is just not hunt as much as we all want to spend time afield and we spend all this money and time on management and on gear and guns and camo and all kinds of fun stuff. And you want to get out there. I'm not saying not to go out because I, I, I know I overpressure places sometimes because I want to take my kids. Or I want to introduce a new hunter. Or I want to hunt. I, it's the time of year. You just need to have your expectations metered a little bit, knowing, hey, I might be I might be messing this up a little bit and and don't get too disappointed if you're not seeing deer, uh, you know, because you're probably impacting it. Um, so hunting pressure is a whole world of deer movement. That's really cool. Um, I talked about excursions. I'll, I'll, uh, excursions are this thing that deer do that we've learned in the last couple of years that are quite amazing where a deer bucks and does do it. Um, all age classes, um, do it, uh, where they leave their 90, 90 to 95% confidence, uh, in interval home range. And they go somewhere one to three miles away, four or five miles away, sometimes even further. And then they return back about 16 to 24 hours later. They just do these one time movements of, they just go way out. And then they come back a, a really cool, cool stuff. They do it all year long. It's certainly more influenced by the breeding season um, where, you know, during the rut, you'll find bucks will leave and they go in search of a mate, but does do the same thing. Does will leave their home range and go in search of a mate, but they do them in the summer and the spring too. Um, cool study out of Illinois showed that uh, yearlings that do it. So one and a half year old bucks that do these, excursions uh are different than dispersal when they eventually do disperse um their path is shorter uh their path is faster compared to dispersal and they almost seem like these attempts to figure out where they want to disperse on the landscape they, they do these like test runs as they're a youngin and go you know out and back out and back couple different directions and then all of a sudden they make a dispersal um, we're still learning more about what young deer do for excursions, but yeah, excursions are neat. Um, so if you think about like, you know, getting a trail camera image of a buck you've never seen before, or you're sitting there and you see this buck come running through and you have lots of pictures of bucks and you've never seen that deer before, could be a deer on excursion, you know, it could be a, a buck that's making these one time jaunts. The cool thing is only about half of bucks do them. Not every buck goes on excursions and the ones that do uh, about half of them have the propensity to do it more than once. So basically 25% of bucks will do them. It's not like every buck is going on these things all over the place. So um, it lends itself though, to, you know, making sure your butts in, in a tree stand, even though you might be pressuring all the deer that live on your property, you never know what might show up. Right. And that's, what's cool about hunting. Something could show up that was one to three miles away. And, uh, living there all year you never know that deer existed all of a sudden he comes cruising through your property so that's a pretty neat neat project too uh, or neat uh, aspect of movements that we've learned there's a lot more yeah uh, that, than that that one is really hits close to home because there's a there's a particular deer that uh, my buddy and i have been trying to hunt since i think um 2016 december of 2016 um just one day in the middle of december um, just this nice three-year-old eight point shows up and he can, he only shows up one time 
during the daylight, and we get several pictures of him. And he comes back every year near mid-December and for, for like one one time. Yeah. Like he comes to the corn one time, and we've nicknamed him Greatness. He's a six-and-a-half-year-old deer now and just a, a true trophy of an eight-point, but he only shows up one time a year. And oh, this, he... this ran, the, what you're talking about of, of them moving, you know, one to five miles on a single excursion for 16 to 24 hours. Never have I heard something like that. And it's super affirming because this situation is extremely frustrating and it happens every single year. Yeah. And you know what? Well, one of the projects I, I, you just uh, reminded me, one of the projects had a deer, it was a springtime excursion, but had a buck do it on the exact same day, like two or three years in a row. Um, You know, again, they, they got GPS collars, so they know the day the deer does it. And uh, deer left like literally the exact same day in March, both two years, two or three years in a row out. Um, another thing we learned uh, that you made me think about that is some deer, it's rare. I mean, it's not like every deer has, it's probably less than 10% of them have what's known as a dumbbell home range, where they mm-hmm. literally have two home ranges. Uh, or if you pictured a map, you know, they have this b- bubble over in the left corner. And they bubble over in the right corner and they spend about 50% of the time on either one. There might be some seasonality to that where like in summer they're over in this area and in winter they're over on that. And they um, literally in a one or two day period, they could be a couple miles away, go like all of a sudden they say, all right, packing up my stuff and leaving, going to my summer home. And they go over to that other home range and they stay there for months and then all of a sudden they go back. It's, it's, It's not a very common aspect of home range shape. Uh, but some deer do do that. So, uh, you know, that, that's another possibility. The deer you're saying, if, you, if it's just one picture and he shows up around the same time a year and then leaves, it, it probably is some kind of seasonal excursion that the deer is doing it annually. If you don't get any other visit, you know, uh, observations of the deer, pictures or, or seeing them, um, and he probably goes back. Who knows where he's going, though, right? Unless you, yeah. you have uh, a community of people that you're talking to about deer management and deer hunting. And you compare notes and somebody says, man, that deer lives all over the place. I never get him on daylight, you know, but he's, he, I get lots of pictures of him. Then you'd know where he lives. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that would be what, where one of those co-op programs would really plug in well here. You know, I mean, some, your neighbor three miles up the road might be like, yeah, I have that deer all over the property every, you know, every year, but you're seeing yeah. him one time a year, just sitting in the stand praying. And it's super discouraging. Cause I'm, I don't live at home anymore and I'm telling, I'm telling my buddy, you need to go get in the stand. You know, it's about that time of year where he makes that one excursion. He's like, Oh, I don't know. I think he's dead. And he shows up every single year and it's just, it's so weird. And it's like, it's really fascinating because it's, it's literally almost on the dot and it's only one time, you know, for a couple hours and then he's just gone. And man, that's so awesome. I mean, the stuff that we've learned because of GPS technology, I mean, uh, is is just it's quite amazing actually, and uh, you know we're still learning a lot more, and there's stuff that we don't know about about how deer react to certain things, but um, it, it is it is some neat stuff. I I, I loved I like talking about it obviously, but I, I love digging into the into the research. So you know one of the real common questions I get when we get into this topic is how moon impacts deer, how weather impacts deer. Those are real common, obviously. I, uh, we know in terms of the weather, um, you would think and being a deer hunter and seeing, you know, having observations of deer, you would think weather directly impacts deer. Um, but 
it's pretty cloudy, you know, pun intended, in terms of what the research says. There's old research with not GPS collars, but the old radio collars that showed some impact of weather influence on deer. But there's old radio collar research that shows that it did not. Same thing with GPS collars. Some GPS collars show um, no impact and, and some show very limited um, correlation. Uh, if I had to pick a yes or no, I, gosh, you know, my intuition as a deer hunter says it impacts them. But honestly, if I really, as a, as a science-based organization, and if I was going to give you an assessment of what the literature says, is that it doesn't. I mean, I, it really, honestly, there's examples of some projects that have like 50, 50 to 100 deer collared, li like literally over half a million data points. And they lined all of that data up statistically with weather patterns, barometric pressure, wind, uh, rain events, you know, that kind of stuff to see if there was a change in what deer were doing based on those data points when the weather changed and they found no correlation, no statistical uh, difference in any of that. I mean, mm. that's like a head shaker, right? Yeah. Uh, that's considering really uh, like intuitively as a hunter, like you feel like deer are doing something different when there's a weather pattern about to change. I mean, I hear, I, I mean, it's, it's water cooler talk for hunters is like, you know, first uh, South wind after a North deer on their feet or snowstorms about to hit in the North anyway. Uh, you know, barometric pressures dropping, better get out there. And it, you feel like you're seeing more deer, but I don't know, is it one of those things like uh, a magic rock? If you feel it and you're sitting out there, you're just out there. So you actually have the opportunity to see it instead of being on your couch or at your computer screen. I, I don't know. The data does not really strongly suggest that weather influences deer um, movement. It's really interesting. I, oh, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I have a hard time with that um but that's you know uh, i have a science background uh, and <laughs> that's yeah. what the, d the data says yeah Maybe i was talking i was talking to Lindsay, and he, i was talking to him about uh about the moon and how i thought that uh, a full moon affects deer and you know that's kind of hunting camp talk and you hear that a lot that you know oh full moon i'm gonna have a really bad day now and he was telling me that that statistically was insignificant and and not true, but I mean, I think about a lot of these, uh, these old time things that we talk about, like placebo effect, like if you believe it, is it true? You yeah. Know? And well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like a lot of that, uh, a lot of that is maybe just personal observation and, and people start to believe that cause they've seen it in one, um, in one instance. Cool. Well, thank you for jumping on this episode and we'll cover the rest of the stuff, um, on the next one, man. Perfect. Thank Christian. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. All right, man. Have a great day. You too. Bye. See ya. Hey guys, thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it. And we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.